Mark chapter 6, when we begin at verse 30, we're cutting into the middle of the chapter and in the middle of an idea. And the idea is that recently before this, Jesus sent out his 12 disciples two by two into ministry teams that would go uh, throughout the cities and the regions of Galilee so that people could, could hear the word, not just from Jesus himself, he could only be in one place at one time, but from the disciples as well. And the disciples enjoyed tremendous success as they went out and performed this ministry. They preached to people, they taught them the the word of God, they they brought people to repentance, they healed the sick, there there, there were uh, demons cast out of people, it was a wonderful time of ministry. And now as we pick it up in verse 30 of Mark chapter 6, the disciples come back from that trip. So let's take a look, it says, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught, and how they were excited. Look at the response of Jesus here in verse 31. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. Isn't that so wise of Jesus? knowing that the disciples had worked very hard and spent themselves in ministry and really given themselves out to serve the people. So now Jesus looks at them and he can perhaps see it in their eyes, the fatigue that's there. And he says, now it's time for you men to come away and rest. Let's go to a deserted place and rest for a while. Nobody could ever say that Jesus was a lazy man. No, not at all. Jesus was a very hard-working man. He knew the value of hard work better than anybody. In John chapter 9, he said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one could work. There was an urgency in Jesus' heart about doing the work of God, and he was a very hard-working man. At the same time, Jesus really knew the value of rest. You know how it is if, if you push it all the time with work and work and work and never take time out for rest and, and refreshment and, and not just recreation, but recreation. As you do that, as you allow that to happen, you become a more effective worker than ever. So Jesus said, it's time for you men to get away for, for a time of rest. Let's get away to a deserted place. But it doesn't always work out that way, does it? Look at it, verse 34 excuse me, verse 33, where we read, But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. The way I sort of envisioned it is the crowd gets the idea here and they know where they're going. And Jesus says, guys, let's get away to a deserted place. And they go there and I don't know if I was making a movie about this, I, I, would, I would do it this way in the director's instructions and in the script. I, I would have Jesus and his disciples coming to the, this house in a deserted place. It's a country house in the middle of a great big field. Nobody else around and they come there at night. And they get in and they crash, guys, let's sleep. And in the morning, we'll just, we'll just have some fun together. And they get up and it says there in verse 34, and Jesus, when he came out, I picture Jesus coming out of the house, the door in the morning, looking outside, and there's thousands of people everywhere. He goes, I thought we came to a deserted place. There's thousands of people everywhere. And he found out that the crowd followed him. He couldn't get away. How would you feel? 
I would know how I'd feel if I was one of the disciples. I'd be annoyed, and I'd be a little bit angry. Work, work, work. Don't these people want anything more from me than that? Here they are, all their needs, all their demands. Teach me this. Heal me of that. I I can't take it anymore. Get out of here. Not Jesus. What a different heart Jesus had. Did you see it in verse 34? Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them. Jesus couldn't see this crowd as just a crowd. He couldn't look and just see, well, it's just a whole bunch of people and a bunch of people who want something from me. No, when Jesus looked, he saw the faces. He saw every face and he saw that there, that there was hurt on this face and And there was a real sense of need on that face. And here's one that looked confused. And there's another one in so much pain. And Jesus looked at them, not as a crowd, not as a multitude, but he saw the individual faces and he was moved with compassion. Yes, Jesus was tired. Yes, his disciples had their own needs. But Jesus was a thoroughly others-centered person. And so he cared more about the needs of someone else than he cared about his own needs. He was moved with compassion, but, but more than that, if you saw at the end of verse 34, it says he was moved because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Isn't that interesting? You look at a big crowd like that, and there's so many things that you could say about the crowd. You could say, oh, this poor crowd, they're under the boot of the domination of the Roman Empire. That's their problem. Why, what we need to do is start a political movement and get this, this group freed from the domination of the Roman Empire. No, that wasn't what Jesus said. Jesus could have looked at the multitude and be moved with compassion and said, I can't believe how many sick and lame and diseased people there are. They, they need healing. Let's get a medical group going here. There's something to help them, please, for heaven's sakes. He didn't do that. What Jesus saw was the most important need of that multitude, even though they had political trouble, even though they had physical trouble, even though they had a hundred different problems. He said the real problem of these people is they're like sheep, Without a shepherd. They need a shepherd to care for them like a shepherd cares for sheep. A shepherd to guard them against predators. Because wolves will come in and without a shepherd the the, the sheep are at the mercy of the wolves. They, They need a shepherd to come in and to lead them to green pastures. And to take them beside still waters. They need a shepherd to restore their soul. And to lead him into the paths of righteousness. Jesus looked and you wonder if a tear didn't begin to form up in his eye as he saw this multitude and realized that what they really needed, they needed a shepherd to take loving care for them. But Jesus didn't just turn his back on the multitude. No, he started doing something about it. Verse 34, at the very end of it says, So he began to teach them many things. You know what he's saying right there? He's saying, I'll be your shepherd. Your sheep without a shepherd, let me be your shepherd. Let me feed you. Here's some spiritual food. Your most pressing need is to be fed the word of God, he says. Now, friends, that's not the only thing that sheep need. They need more than food. The sheep need to be protected against predators and wolves. That The sheep need to be guided into the right place and, and led to the right uh, areas for, for them to be in. But as much as anything, they need food. You know, without food, nothing else is very good. If the sheep are all skinny and sick and emaciated because they don't have the right food, well, who cares if the predator comes in? 
If the sick are so, if the sheep, I should say, are so sick that they can't travel anywhere, well, they, then, then what good is it for the shepherd to be able to lead them? The shepherd does more than feed the sheep, but he must feed the sheep. And Jesus says here, let me be your shepherd. I'll bring you the word of God. And that's what he did. But he did much more. Look at verse 35. And when the day was now far spent, Jesus had been teaching them all day. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and already the hour is late. I wonder if they weren't saying it sarcastically. This is a deserted place. Well, in one sense, it was deserted because there was no village there, which meant there was no place for everybody to buy food. In the other sense, it wasn't a deserted place at all because there were about 8,000 people right in front of them. In any regard, this is a deserted place, and the, uh, already the hour is late. Verse 36, send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages to buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. Now, both Jesus and the disciples saw the same problem. Here's a big, needy multitude. They're hungry, and there's no place for them to buy food. The disciples wanted to fix the problem. And so their solution to fix the problem was to say, get out of here, go, leave. Jesus had a completely different kind of solution. And he wanted the disciples to see his own solution. That's why he said in verse 37, he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? I love the response of the disciples. You know, it's hard to believe if they were angry with Jesus or just couldn't believe what he said. But certainly, the thought of spending about a year's income to feed this multitude for one meal seemed impossible to them. It's like they responded to Jesus, Jesus, hello, it would take a year's worth of income to feed these 8,000 people. We don't have that kind of money, Jesus. I think it was more than just saying they don't have this kind of money. They probably were saying to Jesus as well, Jesus, if we had this kind of money, do you think we'd spend it on one meal for this great big group? What good does that do? You blow all this money for for one great dinner for 8,000 people, and four hours later they're hungry again. It's a waste of money. Jesus, can we get a little more practical here, Jesus? You know, it never entered the minds of the disciples that Jesus might provide for the multitude with a miracle. Now, can you blame them? I don't blame them. Do you think any one of them could have figured it out? I know what Jesus will do. He'll get a loaf of bread, and he'll start tearing pieces off of it. And he'll just keep tearing pieces, and one loaf of bread will feed a 1,000. Then he'll move to the next loaf, and that one will feed 2,000. And who would have guessed that ahead of time? You can't blame them for not anticipating what Jesus would do, but at the same time, we need to be able to trust God to provide in ways that we have no idea he'll provide in. Isn't it a beautiful thing to consider that God can provide out of resources that we know nothing about? Nothing about. You don't know all the ways that God can provide. 
You know how it is whenever you're in a time of of pressing financial trouble. You start thinking of all the ways your problem could be solved. It's a very natural thing to do. And you start thinking, well, this way and that way and this, and it's wonderful to do that. But sometimes we limit God by thinking that he has to come through in one of those ways. And we forget that he has resources that we know nothing about. God has a way to provide for the needs of your family. It's called work. Really, it is. That's God's plan. God's plan is revealed in his word. He says his his plan is that a man would work and provide for the needs of his family and that a person would live that way. And the Bible says that if a man doesn't provide for the needs of his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. That's God's plan. And so one of the things I love to pray with someone when they're out of work is I love to pray, you know, we know it's God's will for you to work and provide for your family. We just got to pray and ask God to work and to move and to make the arrangements. But we don't have any doubt about what God's will is. We know that this is what he said it in his word. Now, what particular job and what particular situation, that might be a different matter. But we know on the principle that this is what God wants you to do. But the great thing about it is, is that when that provision doesn't come in the normal, God has resources that we know nothing about, nothing. It's the same way in the church. You know, God's normal way of provision for the church is through the giving of its people. The Bible says it's just appropriate that if you get fed spiritual things, then it's appropriate for you to f- support financially. That principle is expressed in the book of Galatians and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, as well as in the book of, of 1 Timothy. I mean, it's just a biblical principle. But the glorious thing about it is that God is not limited by the normal ways of provision. He can also provide in extraordinary ways. And so while the disciples were counting up their money and doing a cost analysis, they weren't remembering that Jesus is not limited by those things. I think it's also important to realize that Jesus had different spending priorities than the disciples did. If they had the money, they would have never spent it on one dinner for 8,000 people. No way. They would have never done it. But Jesus, no, this is what we're going to do. Jesus is going to perform an extraordinarily generous miracle. Why? Jesus wanted to sit down with the multitude and have dinner with them because he loved them. You know, when you love people, you want to spend time with them, don't you? You like to have meals with people that you love, don't you? There's just something special about that. And Jesus says, I love this multitude. My heart's moved with compassion towards them. Uh, I, I want to be their shepherd. I care about them. Let's sit down for dinner. So they're going to do it. And don't you love how Jesus begins this here? It starts there again. Let's start again at verse 37. But he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. I think this is another great principle about the way God provides. Jesus's provision always begins with what we already have. Well, what do we got? Jesus says, go and find out. And they bring back five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, this is great, friends, because first of all, the fish were not like whales. You know, it wasn't like Shamu was out there and they could carve it up and feed a multitude. (laughs) And the bread was not some kind of Guinness Book of World Record giant loaf of bread. From what we know of ancient history and, and all this research, the loaves were about the size of a pita bread. 
and the fish were about the size of large sardines. Five loaves, two fish, is really a meal for one or maybe two people. And this is what they bring to Jesus. What do you have, Jesus says? Oh, here it is. You know, Jesus, when he wants to provide for your life, he cares about how you use what you already have. It would have been easy to say, well, five loaves, two fishes. Who cares? Let's just start from scratch. Jesus says, no, I want to start with what you already have. Well, Jesus, it's so small. It's tiny. You can't do anything with this. How can you meet the need with this? Jesus says, bring it to me anyway. Friends, don't foolishly pray for more from God if you're not already using what he's given you in a wise way. That's where it begins. What's God's already given you? What's he put in your hands right now? Well, give it unto him. Let him make something wonderful of it. Make sure that, that, that you've given to Jesus what, what you should put in his hands. Friends, that's, that's everything we have. I'm not talking about what you give unto the Lord's work. Everything we have belongs to the Lord. And so we use what he's given us already in a wise way. Now let's look what happened next. He has the five loaves and the two fishes. And then verse 39. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. Friends, it's a very interesting thing that that the Bible tells us here. In the specific wording of the ancient language, the wording used here is he made them sit down in rows like rows of vegetables in a garden. It was very organized. Jesus did not want a mob scene. It was not going to be one of those things where the the, uh, world relief support truck pulls up and the back of the truck gets open and guys start throwing out loaves of bread, you know, to a mob and everybody's fighting and kicking and clawing over, give me that bread. No, 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 it wasn't going to be like that at all. Jesus said, when I provide, I want the people to be organized to receive what I have to give them. So he said, line them up. Have them sit down in groups. Here's 50 over here. Here's 100 over there. Line them up. This isn't going to be a mob scene. Friends, Jesus provides when we're organized to receive what he will give. God likes organization, especially when it comes to managing what he provides for us. And so he says, here, get them, organize them, get get them set up. And they did. And then now look what happens next. Verse 41. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. I love those old cartoons that they have where the little mice family is starving. And so they have one bean to eat and they start carving it up in little slices to feed all the little mice. You kind of have that idea here with the fish. How can you divide the two fish among thousands of people? Well, apparently as Jesus broke it, it just kept multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. The miracle took place in the hands of Jesus. He gave it to his disciples. The disciples gave it to the multitude. But I want you to notice what Jesus did before this miracle was performed. In verse 41, it said that he looked up to heaven, blessed, and broke the loaves. You know what he did? He thanked God for the food. He said, thank you, Lord, for this. It would have been easy to look at five loaves and two fishes and say, thanks, God, for this. 
Like this is going to feed anybody? No, no, no. Jesus thanked God for what he had provided and for what he will provide. And then God did a miracle with it. A beautiful, beautiful work here in the hands of Jesus. If you look at the result in verse 42, look at this for a principle about Jesus' provision. So they all ate and were filled. Everybody was filled. To me, that seems over the line. God, you don't have to stuff everybody at this meal. Why not just invite everybody to have a little snack, a little appetizer? Jesus says, no, no, you don't understand. I'm sitting down with dinner with people I love. You better believe there's going to be enough food on the table. Here it is. Come, come. Everybody, eat as much as you want, he says. You want another piece of bread? How about more fish? Here it is. Everybody eats, and they're all filled. You know how it is. You get that kind of woozy feeling after you've eaten too much. And there they are. They're just, whoa, man, we're all stuffed. And they just want to lay down for a little while. And Jesus said, here, here it all is. You know what I think is amazing about this is that Jesus provided for the multitude more than enough food. Oh, there it was. There was food left over. But friends, it was simple, wasn't it? There was nothing really extravagant about the menu. I would have gone up to Jesus and said, look, as long as we're making food miraculously, <laughs> steak, lobster, you know, let's work on this, Jesus. Let, let's really do it upright. Come on. No, no, no. Listen, Jesus knows that he provides the needs more than enough, but simply, simply. I bet it was awfully good bread. I bet it was great fish. But it was simple, wasn't it? Now, friends, I think the final principle here about Jesus' provision, we find right here in verses 43 and 44, where it says, And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now, those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. What does that tell you about Jesus' provision? He's saying, don't waste it. You know, you'd kind of think that the disciples would say, What do you mean, go around and pick up the fragments of bread? Did you see what Jesus just did? Guy's a walking bread truck. We don't need him around here. I mean, who needs to? We could just travel light from now on. It just make the food. We want dinner. We'll just bring, we could bring him one loaf of bread and one fish, and everybody's fed. Now, Jesus could have just left it all behind, but he didn't. Because Jesus generously provides, but he doesn't want things wasted. It isn't because Jesus is cheap. It isn't because Jesus doesn't trust for future provision. He just knows that wastefulness does not glorify the God of all provision. You know, when you're wasteful, it's like not being thankful for what God's given you. So that's why Jesus said, pick it all up. What a beautiful, beautiful example of the way God provides. But now... Beginning with verse 45, you'll see God provide for the disciples in another way. We read immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Isn't this great? Jesus says, listen, guys, go, go get in the boat, go across the lake, go now, go. I'm going to go up and pray. He sent the multitude away, which is another thing I think was great. You know, Jesus cared about the multitude. He loved them, right? He was moved with compassion, but it's not like he had to have a crowd to make himself feel assured. He could say to the multitude, I fed you, I've ministered to you, I've been a shepherd unto you. Now you can go home. We'll meet up again later. Bless you, go home. So they went home. The disciples got in the boat to go on the way, and Jesus went up in the mountain to pray. And then now, verse 47 
Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw them straining at the rowing, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, that's about three o'clock in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea, and he would have passed them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Isn't that amazing? Here Jesus is up on the hill, and maybe it's, a, it's one of those bright moonlit nights, and he can look down as the moon reflects off the waters of the Sea of Galilee. And if you've ever been to that area of Israel, you know that, that the Sea of Galilee is surrounded by a series of hills, and there's Jesus up on one of those hills. He's praying, and maybe during a time when he's just looking out in reflection on the water, he sees that the wind is blowing, and the disciples, they've been rowing half the night. I mean, they would have started when it was just getting dark. And, and so for hours, they've been rowing across the lake. And he says, God bless them. They're going in the, where I wanted them to go. But the wind's blowing against them. They've been working all night, straining at the oars. And they're only halfway across. And Jesus says, I, I don't want them to be so frustrated. I'm going to go help them. And so he sets out. And it's amazing. we wouldn't believe this unless the Bible told us it. He starts walking on the water. And he's making his way along. And I love it. It says he would have passed them by unless they cried out. It's just like he's out taking a walk. Yeah, it's walking along and, oh, guys, you need some help there. I think Jesus waited for them to cry out. He wanted them to cry. Now, of course, he was out there to help them, but he wanted them to ask. He wanted them to ask in that situation. You know, sometimes God knows you need the help, but he still wants you to ask. You're like that with your kids, aren't you? You know they're troubled, and, and, and you offer your help, but you know they need to come and ask if they're going to be in the right place to receive it. And so here you are, Jesus comes, and he, he's walking by, and they crowd to Jesus, Jesus, come, and what an amazing sight it would have been for the disciples. They see Jesus out there walking on the sea, and friends, this isn't a, a calm, flat sea, not that it makes any difference. If you're going to walk on the water, it just doesn't matter if it's flat or, or bumpy or whatever, but I mean, this was a storm-tossed, wind-swept Sea of Galilee. It's swelling up in different places. Jesus probably slid down a few peaks on his way to the disciples there, and he walks on his way to the disciples and there here he is and they say well here come in and and Jesus gets in the boat the wind stops now we're not told this in this gospel but in the gospel of John we're told that immediately the boat arrived at the other side I don't know how to explain that one I mean Jesus got in and if he can multiply the bread and the fishes if he can if he can walk on the water, if he can get in the boat and it's immediately calm, then I suppose he can immediately transport the boat to their destination and they're there. Now there's another thing that Mark leaves out. And I need to explain this. What we know from church history and from subtle clues within the Gospel of Mark, we believe that Peter, the Apostle Peter, was the main source for Mark's Gospel. Mark was a close friend of Peter. They traveled together. There's little indications of Peter by church tradition. Some ancient Christian writers have even called the Gospel of Mark Peter's Gospel. 
So we know that Peter had a lot of influence in this. But isn't it curious that this is the whole incident about Peter getting out of the boat and walking to Jesus, and it's recorded in Matthew, not in Mark. Now, why did Peter leave that one out? (laughs) Now, we could give Peter credit, and we could say, well, it's because he's a very humble man. And he doesn't want to say, I'm the man who walked on water. I saw Jesus out there, and I said, Lord, if it's really you, then tell me to come. And Jesus said, come on. And I actually, I put my leg over the boat and I put my weight down and I stood up. I didn't understand how, I didn't understand what was happening, but I was standing. I put my other leg out and I was, and then, and I just kept my eyes on Jesus. I kept, and I walked on the water. Jesus, Peter could have been of the kind of mind where he said, I'm, I'm a humble man. I don't want to advance myself. Or <laughs> Peter might have been embarrassed that not only did he walk on the water, but he sank in the water right? Because as he's walking out to Jesus and probably thinking, you know, I'm a pretty spiritual guy. I'm walking on the water. Yep. Yep. And then all of a sudden he starts looking around at the waves and the wind and all the surroundings. He takes his eyes off Jesus and he begins to sink and he goes, Jesus, save me. And Jesus reaches out his hand, picks him up, and they go into the boat together. And Peter might say, well, let's leave that part out. You know, I, I don't know. We, I, I'm not so so fond of that part, and it's easy for us to criticize. I could make a great sermon on that. You know, brother, you just need to keep your eyes on Jesus. You get your eyes off Jesus, and then you'll sink, just like Peter. Look at Peter. He didn't keep his eyes on Jesus. But you know, at least Peter got out of the boat, didn't he? That's a step more than many of us have ever done. Many of us, we just need to hear it. Get out of the boat. So what if you sink? Jesus will call out to Jesus, and he'll rescue you. But get out of the boat. You're there, you are, you're in the boat, and you're, you're evaluating Peter. You come back and you're giving him scores as he comes back in the, in the boat, but you need to get out of the boat yourself. And that's where, that's where Peter was. Well, we wrap it up here, take a look at verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran through that whole surrounding region and began to carry on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was, wherever he entered, into villages, cities, or the country. They laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the border of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus, again, showing his compassion, his care, his provision. And friends, what I want you to see is this second half of the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Mark is all about provision. Jesus says to his disciples, I'll provide a place of rest for you. Jesus says to the multitude, I'll provide what you need in a shepherd and I'll feed you the word of God. And then Jesus provides for the food needs of the multitude. And then Jesus provides for his disciples as they're out there on the stormy sea of Galilee. And then finally, Jesus provides for the sick and the diseased among the multitude at the very end of the chapter. It's all over this section. Jesus provides for his people. But you know, there's two ways that provision can come in your life. It can come in what I'll call, for lack of a better way of saying it, it can come the government way. You open up your mailbox, and there's a check. Because for whatever reason, the government's providing for your needs. It's not like anybody really wants to get to know you over that check. 
They're not really caring for your needs. It's no kind of personal relationship. You probably don't want to have a personal relationship with the government bureaucrat that processed your check. You just get the check, and it provides for your needs. Then there's another way of providing for your needs. It's the family way. And in the family way, you're like a child in the family, and dad provides for your needs. The kid doesn't worry about the electric bill. The kid doesn't worry about, uh, you know, the grocery bill. He wants to make sure that the things he likes to eat are there in the pantry, but he doesn't care about the grocery bill. The kids don't care about the phone bill. They just trust mom and dad to take care of that. Right? And, And their needs are provided for. Way better than the government would provide for the needs. But here's the other difference. In the family, the parents just don't leave a check. They want to have a relationship with the children. It's like, yeah, I provide for your needs, but let's also have a relationship. I want my provision for you to be part of a wonderful, loving relationship. Now, how do you regard God's provision in your life? Sometimes you think it's just kind of that way. Well, God, send me a check. Come on now, I need some money. Let me open up the mailbox. and It's the government kind of way. Where your needs are provided for, but detached from relationship. God's plan is to provide for your life in the family kind of way of providing. Where he provides for your life and it draws you closer and closer to him in a love relationship with him. Where you're talking to him about all your needs. You know, Lord, I, I need this. And, and, and Lord, what about this? And, and God will say, well, you look, you're asking for steak and lobster there. I've got bread and fish. I'll provide that for you. And, and you work that out. It's just a glorious relationship with the Lord. But you see, for some of us, sometimes that, that relationship grows a little cold. You get in the Christian routine. You get in the Christian rhythm of things. And pretty soon, it's just not the same as it once was. Let's get back to it, huh? Let's get back to the beauty and the power and the simplicity of that simple relationship with the Lord. If you've never known it, or once you have, and you don't know it as well as you do now, let's, let's get back to it. Get back to beautiful relationship with Jesus Christ. Tell Jesus something that you've never told anybody else this week. Talk to him about your needs like you would a friend. He wants to hear from you, because he doesn't just want to send you a check in the mail. He wants the relationship too. Let's Let's pray together and ask God to cement that in our hearts. Father, we do ask for that special blessing from you. We want more, Lord, than just the bare provision of our needs. We want it all to be done, Lord, within the circle of a beautiful, growing, vibrant relationship with you. So, Father, I pray for every one of us here this morning, myself included, that you'd keep us away from that stale, cold relationship. Make it alive. Make it vibrant. Remind us, Lord, how much you love us. Lord, we know that when the government sends us a check, it feels obligated, but it doesn't love us. You were moved with compassion for the multitude and for us. Cement it in our lives, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.